Welcome to the VetoCast. This is the first episode of a series dedicated to shed light upon the work of the United Nations Security Council. The main focus of this series will be the use of the veto, how it is sometimes misused by the five permanent members of the Security Council, and the dire consequences this can have on the rest of the world. A misuse of the veto in this sense can be referred to as an illegitimate veto. Over the course of this series, we will be explaining certain concepts that are important in international relations. We will look closer at some historic vetoes that could be considered illegitimate, and we will identify the impacts that illegitimate vetoes can have upon different conflicts. The VetoCast is produced by an Uppsala-based project called Stop Illegitimate Vetoes. To introduce this project, we will talk to two of its members, Hannah Vernerschen and Daniel Schielen. Uh, my name is Hannah Vernerschen and I am the vice president of the Challenge Group, which is the organization who is running the campaign Stop Illegitimate Vetoes. And uh, I'm a student in political science. Uh, and my name is Daniel Schielen. I'm the president of the Challenge Group and I have a background in political science and also in peace and conflict studies. It is a social media campaign which uh, seeks to make uh, the permanent five members of the Security Council to uh, make a voluntary commitment to be more restricted with their video use. And uh, we have got a proposal which says that the permanent five members are not to use their video unless they consider the draft resolution before them to be a threat to their essential security interests or a threat to their sovereignty. Exactly. And this comes from a problem that we've observed over the past 24 years or so, that the use of the veto is actually not to protect the sort of vital interests of the permanent members, but rather a way of, for instance, protecting uh, political allies or, for that matter, making political points. And we see this as a huge problem because that's not what the Security Council is supposed to do. We want to see some sort of agreement between the permanent uh, five members of the Security Council, that is the United Kingdom, the United States, Russia, France, and China, uh, that they will only use the veto when it's absolutely necessary for their sort of state survival, when it comes down to the security or sovereignty of their own state. And that's a pretty definite, a very defined um, set of, of, of situations where that can happen. That doesn't apply today. So uh, we're seeking for an official declaration, an agreement among these members, uh, which they are to follow after that. We all have different reasons for, for being part of this, but the, the sort of core group that started this um, quite a few months ago now uh, did so because we believe that you can achieve a whole lot of things through the United Nations system. It's just that that system is not very effective as it is. Exactly, and I believe that... You can regard the UN as being more or less functionate, but the truth is that if the UN did not exist today, we would have the need to invent it. Because we are faced with a globalized reality, and in order to cope with challenges and to fulfill all the potentials there is out there, we need to collaborate internationally. And I personally believe that the UN is the forum for it. But then we need to make it more functionate. Absolutely. And of course, that we're not criticizing the United Nations as an idea. We're criticizing how it works. And uh, I think for me personally, it's very important that we can work within the structure that is already there, but doing it 
in a better way and not seeing the the traditions of the United Nations or the Security Council for that matter as set in stone and final. It's not that we cannot change these things. We can and we should. Well, let's say it's triggering, you know? It's, let's say, challenge accepted. We see the problems, we have an idea about a solution, and we want to do something about it, and we're trying to. If I could just add that, of course, it's it's frustrating uh, to see that the United Nations seems so very far away to a lot of people, ourselves included. The United Nations is not just a building in New York. It's also quite a few levels of government and politics in between there. But there are instances where um, you have been able to, uh, from a sort of uh, individual level, a political level, uh, introduce new ideas onto the global scale. And that's what we're trying to do here. It's not impossible to do. It's just very, very uh, difficult to get uh, that started. But I think we're on on the right way. One of the most important thing is that the veto is the main tool for a certain set of countries, a certain set of states that has a lot of power in the Security Council. And the United Nations, the work of the United Nations, uh, influences the lives of all people on the globe, no matter if you live in a state that is a member or uh, not a member of the United Nations, you're still very much uh, affected by this. And so if we as citizens in different states can participate and um, be sure that the United Nations work in a way that's that's preferable to us and in our interest, I think we can get a, a long way. And so that's really why it's so important. And, I mean, the Vida is historically and today often serving as an obstacle for the UN to fulfill its purposes. And when the veto power is misused, the consequences are fatal. Take Syria, for example. Uh, it is human lives that is at stake. And it is not only an issue about solving current problems, it's also an issue about the UN being a proactive force when it comes to international frictions. Because if the UN can be effective, it will be considered legitimate and we can actually have an international force that can work proactive. I think I think it's very important for us to uh, be part of a sort of a, a rethinking of the, of the veto, simply because everything that is decided in the United Nations Security Council and in the United Nations will affect people everywhere. It's not just people on the front lines of a conflict. It's everyone are affected by this in some way. And eventually you might find yourself yourself on the front line and then it's very important to know that the security council and the united nations work in your best interest and at the moment that's not the case we cannot be sure that that will happen that's why we need to make sure uh for our own sakes and for everyone else's that this is a system that works i don't I think the problem is the formulation of the veto. The veto is a fact. It's a political and a legal fact. Hans Karel, Swedish lawyer and diplomat, former Undersecretary General for Legal Affairs and the Legal Council of the United Nations. The problem is that the members of the Council, the permanent five members, they use the veto in situations where 
it's actually not legitimate. And uh, this is why I think it's so important that uh, member states, but also non-governmental organizations and students around the world analyze this question and send a very, very firm message to the Security Council that they have to do better. They are not performing in the way they should, in my view, under the Charter. And in the United Nations, it's the UN Charter that governs the work of the uh, Security Council. And to quote Article 24 of the UN Charter, the members of the Security Council, they have the preliminary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. And the members of the United Nations agree that in carrying out its duties under this responsibility, the Security Council acts on their behalf. To understand how the veto function can be misused, we must first explain why the veto function exists. To do this, we have to go back to the creation of the United Nations itself. February 1945. President Roosevelt journeys to Yalta to meet with Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. They discuss the fate of Europe when Germany is defeated. Stalin promises to participate in the formation of a new world organization, the United Nations. The United Nations was founded on the 24th of October 1945, but an attempt at creating an organization for international peace had existed previously. It was known as the League of Nations, but it had failed spectacularly. It was unable to prevent the outbreak of the Second World War. It was believed that a lack of involvement from the major powers led to the League's downfall. Any decisions made by the League were obsolete, because it did not have a large enough intended political influence. Lessons were learned from this attempt, and one of the key thoughts when founding the new organization, the United Nations, was to ensure that all major world powers were largely involved. To ensure this wider involvement, a Security Council and five permanent seats for the major powers were created. Following the end of the Second World War, um, the Security Council was essentially mandated to act on behalf of all the members of the United Nations to ensure what they say is the maintenance of international peace and security. And the permanent members in 1945 were granted a special privilege of a veto. My name is Ryan D'Souza. I'm the advocacy officer at the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. We're a New York-based organization with a mandate to advance the responsibility to protect norm, both in New York, across the UN system, and also in capitals around the world. The cast of a negative veto would mean a resolution would not be approved. The United States, Great Britain, France, the Russian Federation and China became the Permanent Five, also known as P5 countries. The remaining 10 seats in the Security Council were filled by other UN members for a time-mandated period. With the Second World War fresh in their minds, one of the most significant demands by the P5 countries was that their own national security or sovereignty would not be threatened by decisions made in the Security Council. The veto was introduced as a solution. However, this means essentially in certain situations we can have the vast majority of the General Assembly adopt a non-binding resolution and then 14 out of the 15 Security Council members vote in support of a resolution. But this can all be hijacked by one permanent member vetoing a resolution. I mean, this is a historic, a historic anachronism and illustrates the necessity for wider UN Security Council reform. 
As such, the legitimacy of the Security Council and the UN as a whole is being questioned. So, I mean, we've seen this kind of initiative kind of grow from strength to strength. Over 60 governments have called for veto restraint. My organization has been working with other very large human rights organizations to mobilize civil society action around the world. Um, this includes working with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and FIDH. I mean, ultimately, this is something that shocks all of us collectively. Um, any commissioner of atrocity crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes. So we cannot allow the veto to be employed and witness another tragedy taking place again. The voting procedure on the Security Council is mandated through the 27th chapter of the UN Charter. The veto isn't explicitly stated in the Charter. Rather, it's a term for a negative vote cast by one of the P5 countries. For a resolution to be passed on the Security Council, it must gain a minimum of nine votes for out of the Council's possible 15. An abstention is not a vote against. The veto is activated when one of the P5 countries votes against a resolution. When this occurs, the resolution will not be passed, whether or not the resolution gained the nine votes necessary in the Security Council. With the voting procedure in mind, and the historical origins of the veto function explained, we can now begin to understand the nature of an illegitimate veto. A veto is legitimate when it is used in the way it was intended. It must be used to safeguard the P5's own sovereignty or national security, and be within the guidelines of the UN Charter. A veto becomes illegitimate when it is used for other purposes, such as safeguarding political interest or the interests of allies. There are examples of this in the Security Council's past. The veto privilege for the P5 countries was not intended as a political instrument to dictate what aims the UN should pursue. When a veto is used in that manner, it should be considered an illegitimate veto. Vito is um, at the very heart of the UN and its functions today. Um, all the various organs and functions and organizations and structures that we find in the UN today can be interlinked to the workings of the Security Council. Exactly. And, and of course, there are plenty of problems that you can deal with and try to solve within the United Nations. Absolutely. And we recognize that there are plenty, such as the election of the of the Secretary General, which is coming up next year. But that's also a problem that, that comes back to the use of the veto. And so many other problems does that as well. So by solving the problem of the veto, or at least um, enabling a better use of it, we can start looking at the other individual problems. So it's the sort of first step in towards making uh, the United Nations a better organization that works better. I think that... At this moment, we do have a certain momentum. Uh, and I'm not just saying we as in the challenge group, but everyone that's working for some sort of either reform or different set of ideas regarding the use of the veto in the Security Council. Um, there is uh, something called the French Initiative, which is uh, currently running and trying to get something to change. And also with the anniversary of the United Nations that comes up this fall, it's actually 70 years ago that the UN was founded. Uh, we can actually start looking at this from a historical perspective and also saying that, well, this worked for 70 years somewhat okay. Now let's try to do it better for the next 70 years. Yeah, and I think right now might actually the best shot in a long time to change this, to change the current order. The French initiative that Daniel mentioned is actually 
the French government who have declared officially that they are to be more restrictive with their veto and they are urging all the four other members to follow. And right now it's vital that we all engage in this issue and put public pressure on both France in order for them to stick to their promise and on the four other countries in order for them to see no option but to follow. And right now there is a number of uh, like-minded organizations like ours that are working throughout the world to raise this public pressure. So there is some quite intriguing times at, at the moment. And Hannah is absolutely right when it comes to the, the public pressure. And it's such a vital part of this. Because as much as UN is an international organization, it's not really used to the kind of big political pressure that can come from the citizens that it's meant to protect. Because when we go out to protest a certain political stance, we do so for our national governments. We don't do it to the uh, United Nations or when we try to petition or something like that. It's very rare that this happens. So we need to put forward a concrete solution or a suggestion for a solution at least that can work. And that's what we're trying to do. And I, I think that pressure from the people that that UN is here to protect is going to be what makes or breaks the deal. Because at the end of the day, the UN is us. It's each and every one of us throughout the world. And this is a challenge for everyone. So public pressure is the key. I think there are plenty of things that you can do. Um, you can first and foremost uh, read up on the subject because this is... a It's not a difficult subject, but it's a bit complex. There are plenty of players on the international field that's going to do uh, a whole lot to protect their own interests. At the same time, there are more things that you can do uh, that are more sort of concrete. You can, for instance, look at our webpage, uh, which has a lot of information about what we're trying to do, but also the background uh, and things like that. And you'll find that on www.stopillegitimatevetoes.org. You should follow the campaign, you should keep updated, you should get informed, and you should spread the word. Exactly, showing that we actually care about this, that yes. we're not just completely distracted with other things, that this is something that we care about. And I think that most people do, it's just that it's a, it's a tough subject to get into. Uh, but once you're in there, you see a whole lot of, of things that um, you're never going to regret learning. We return to Hans Carell. Uh, we are a generation handing over the world uh, to you. You are now the coming generation. What is it that we are handing over to you? Could we have done better in our generation? And I think that if somebody says this today, that would send a signal to you that when you work now for the future, Learn the lessons from the past. In particular, don't make the same mistakes that have been made in the past. Then you could start maybe on a better platform and work determined with determination in a particular um, uh, direction. And now with the means of communications we have on the globe, with the internet and so forth, students make contacts over borders and they go to different universities and they make friends and so forth and then come to realize that we are all human beings. We can all make friends. Why should we name uh, some of us enemies 
when we are actually the same generation, have the same hopes for the future, uh, building families also, having children and so forth. Why should we not work in a direction where we can create a world where people can live in dignity where the human rights are protected? That would be my reflections here for the future. And therefore, since the Security Council is such a crucial element in this equation, because after all, they have this fantastic power that is given to them by the UN Charter. If they administer that power in a manner that the whole world can see that they're actually using the same yardstick when they intervene, then I think the whole climate, and now I don't mean in a literal sense, of the globe would be different. This may all seem very abstract, but it does have practical implications of the work of the Security Council and very real consequences for international politics. Over the coming weeks, we will explore these implications and consequences in a podcast series that hopes to stop illegitimate vetoes. It is our world, and the global challenges are of everyone's concern. For peace and prosperity, we need an efficient UN. For more information, visit our webpage at www.stopillegitimatevetoes.org and our Facebook page. Let's stop illegitimate vetoes. You have listened to VetoCast, a podcast of six episodes that explores the effects of the veto power of the United Nations Security Council. VetoCast is part of the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign, which is committed to changing the way the Security Council's veto is used. VetoCast is a co-production by the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes organization and Uppsala Student Radio 98.9. Project manager for VetoCast was Joanna Hellstrom. Production and audio editing by Simon Sander. Scripts by Alexander Friedman. Interviews by Joanna Hellstrom and Philip Alborn. This production was narrated by Leila Mendy. Our thanks to Daniel Schellen and Hannah Wernerschun and the rest of the team behind the Stop Illegitimate Vetoes campaign.